0: Every time you see one of those little lights flash, it's somebody asking for a job. Every time you hear them say "try later," it means there isn't any job. You can't keep the girls at the switchboard long; they go crazy. Every one of those little lights thought it was going to be a star.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every version of A Star is Born that was nominated for Best Picture Ever Made.
0: Shockingly, just the two.
1: I'm Susan Araslin.
0: I'm David Daw.
1: And obviously, this week, we are talking about A Star is Born, but the one from 1936, not the one that was just nominated for an Academy Award, I guess this year, technically. Yeah. Starring Frederick March... And Janet Gaynor in the Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga roles.
0: (laughs) Also weird is this one is not musical at all. It is entirely film star oriented.
1: She's not a singer, which I mean, I guess when they made the second one with Judy Garland, like, why would you waste that opportunity? You know, you have to make her a singer. And then I guess all of the ones after that, the one in the 70s was Barbara Streisand. And then the new one, apparently, there's no film acting part really about it at all. It's just music. So there's been a a progression there. I have to say, I'm totally surprised that neither the Judy Garland nor the Barbra Streisand ones were nominated because of who fronted them. Not that I've seen them. They could be terrible.
0: (laughs) This certainly isn't terrible. And, like, I definitely think our two leads are good. But this... I kept thinking throughout this that maybe I'm forgetting another movie, but this was the first movie I think we've ever seen where the script seemed to be kind of outpacing a lot of the actors. The script was better than the movie was.
1: Yeah, I would say that definitely is the case and uh, yeah I would I would put that down to the direction I feel like that the director wasn't as clever as say Frank Capra. <laughs> Like, this in Frank Capra's hands, he would have made the actors understand what it was that they were doing?
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I don't think there's any actor here who just, like, couldn't pull it off, um, with the possible exception of the assistant director best friend character. But all of the side characters outside of our two leads are played much more broadly than they're written. Uh, There's like a lot of nuance to the script that just kind of goes away in the performance of a lot of this. And I guess we should like hit the beats of this because it isn't just identical to every other Star is Born that you've ever watched, if you've watched any of them. The general outline remains the same. Janet Gaynor plays a young woman named Esther Blodgett, Blodgett, which is a great, terrible (laughs) name, who uh, wants to become a Hollywood actress. Uh, Moves to Hollywood with the help and financial support of her grandmother, is a wide eyed innocent who, like, very quickly discovers that being successful in Hollywood is, as it turns out, hard, (laughs) and gets her big break when a sort of, I guess he's already fading when you meet him, fading famous actor who is also a drunk named Norman Maine, which is a great fake actor name, yes. meets her at a party and instantly falls for her and insists on her getting a screen test. That screen test is successful. There's then almost immediately a movie where they just can't find a leading lady. Oh no! That he insists on getting her cast as the lead. During all of this, uh, they change her name from Esther Blodgett to Vicky Lester because Esther Blodgett is a terrible name. Vicki Lester is also kind of a comically terrible name, but it's over the top in the exact right way.
1: It's a totally Hollywood studio name. Mm-hmm. Can we strip you completely of any identifying characteristics while making it something everyone will remember?
0: Yeah, she is an overnight success while Norman starts to be kind of laughed out of Hollywood and becomes less and less successful and becomes more and more of an alcoholic as he is forced to be the homebody, less successful husband of his now famously successful wife. He ends up interrupting the Academy Awards in our first meta Academy Awards moment.
1: It was, right? I I got kind of excited. I was like, oh, she's nominated for an Oscar and we haven't had that yet. And it took 11 years before that happened.
0: (laughs) That sequence is exciting. He stumbles in drunk to interrupt her acceptance speech And ends up accidentally backhanding her, goes to a sanatorium to try and... um, Sober up. Yeah. She continues to be successful, but not like... Really, this is his acting showcase part, because you're in the third act. He gets out, thinks he's better, but gets confronted by the sort of fixer for the studio, who, now that he's not successful, can tell him what a piece of shit he always thought Norman Maine was. And that drives Norman back to drinking. He goes on a drunk driving binge, is going to get sentenced to 90 days, but then Vicky comes in and desperately pleads with the judge to just put him under house arrest.
1: Which works because the judge is her fan.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's wild how um, cynical this movie is about Hollywood.
1: It really is.
0: Once we get through the general plot outline, I really do want to go like almost scene by scene because there's so much stuff that's like that. But he basically figures out he's holding back her career. Uh, She's going to give up being a star to take care of him and to make the marriage work. Uh, And he just walks into the sea and kills himself. I shouldn't laugh at that, but just a little bit the framing is kind of funny of it. Not intentionally within the film, but just like, well, I guess I'll just... It's
1: really, really romanticized. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to walk into the sea at sunset. And there's like the most over-the-top sunset. This is the first movie, by the way, we've watched that's entirely in color. Yes. And the sunset is like just the most brilliant orange and scarlet and like... eh it's it's very romanticized
0: but yeah now we have a little bit of a problem because it's 1937 and so of course esther cannot put her career over her dead husband and so she decides she's going to quit and go back home uh but her grandmother shows up and reminds her of a weird speech from the start of the movie about how everything worth doing involves heartbreak and talks her back into continuing to be a movie star just like norman would have wanted She shows up at the premiere of her next film and goes, hello, everyone. This is Mrs. Norman Maine. And then that's the end of the film, which honestly, it's a big famous ending. I think the end's a little bit weird.
1: As far as I understand, because I will admit that this is the one and only A Star is Born I've ever watched, it is apparently the only really consistent thing In every version of this is that it ends with that person introducing themselves as Mrs. Whatever the dead guy's name is, which, yeah, it's weird that they changed so many other things and they kept that particular ending because it is so... So abrupt.
0: It doesn't seem like quite the through line of the movie you just watched in any way.
1: Yeah, it's like, but doesn't everybody already know that? Like, this is not. Yeah. It's not like it's news. It's not like they've had a secret marriage. They had a secret wedding, but they didn't have a secret marriage.
0: And so it plays as kind of her, like, finally admitting how helpful he was or something, but also like that wasn't a secret either. But yeah, let's sort of talk about some smaller scale stuff because I also don't want to come down too hard on this movie. I liked this movie. I just also thought like, oh, I get why they remade it over and over again because it is a good movie with the bones of a great movie.
1: What I understand is that the 1954 one, despite not being nominated for Best Picture, was nominated for a bunch of stuff. It had music by Irving Berlin and people generally loved it, but it was also three hours long. (laughs) I can't imagine this movie being three hours long unless they, yeah, actually I can't imagine this movie being three hours long. There were times where I felt like some of the narrative arc was sort of sketched out in a way that was not super fulfilling, but not an hour's worth missing.
0: No. And I also think there's almost an equal amount of time to that of Bits where I'm like, we get it. She's not good. Like,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: There's a lot of hot women in their 20s who think they're going to be actresses (laughs) who come to Hollywood. I don't know how many scenes we need of this.
1: And I don't think that that was even like a secret at the time. You know, it's not like, oh, well, but in 1937, people didn't know that you didn't just hop off the bus in LA and like walk into MGM or Columbia Pictures and become a star. I think everybody knew that it was really tough and that very few people made it. So to start at the beginning where she is at home in somewhere midwest america (laughs) and they essentially live in like a log cabin Yeah, like it really looks like a one room house that a bunch of people live in and it, it felt very anachronistic to me cause it's like her dad and some siblings and the grandmother is there and the grandmother talks about how she was a pioneer and I'm like When does this part of the movie take place?
0: (laughs) You know, the reason that sequence is weird to me, they then later on to kind of make fun of Hollywood, do a big thing about just like how she's just like, oh yeah, I grew up in an average town. And then the like cynical thing is that they write down like, grew up in the pristine prairies of, and it's like, she actually did though. There was like a fucking log cabin. Like it's, it's right. <laughs> everything was not up to date in Kansas City when we last left her family.
1: Yes, that is that is totally true. They're actually farmers. I was actually really excited to see her grandmother come back in the final part of the movie because her grandmother was great, and her grandmother was just like, "Look, you gotta go and pursue your dream. Here's my nest egg. Get out of here. <laughs> and if you don't go, I'm gonna be mad at you." And I was like, "Cool." I like grandma. She's great.
0: Yeah, I uh, to be clear, I actually think the framing device of the grandma being there at the start and coming back at the end is a smart way to handle a genuine problem which is that the social expectation of 1937 was that she shouldn't continue her career. I don't think it's cheap or uh, stupid to have the grandma be this framing device about how like hard it is to pursue your dreams. I just think it's weird that she has to do that from a 2018 point of view, because otherwise, Janet Gaynor isn't allowed to still have a life because her husband's dead.
1: It was the first movie, and I had this thought while I was watching it, it's the first movie that we've watched where dedication to someone's career over their romantic familial relationship is framed negatively and it was not lost on me that it was the first time that we had had the woman whose career was successful giving that up for the man and that was the one time that it seemed like the right thing to do whereas in Dodsworth or in Three Smart Girls it was like Well, I mean, men need to go to work. Their family is secondary. Who gives a shit?
0: You know, one of the things I find interesting, though, is that the movie is weirdly directly progressive about that from Norman Mm. that he like very clearly is not a great partner because of his alcoholism and very clearly is not handling his wife being more successful than him very well emotionally. But like, rationally, in terms of the actions he takes, he is constantly like, what is this going to mean for her career? Is this going to hurt her in any way? Because if so, then I'm not doing it.
1: That's definitely true. And he obviously has some resentment about the fact that she's more successful than he is that comes out when he's drinking, but that from a conscious Sober perspective, he does actually really care about her career and that she is successful.
0: And the movie frames that very directly as the right thing to do.
1: Which, I mean, a lot of Norman Main in this movie, and I think what makes it as tragic as it is that he is an alcoholic and that it is destroying his life and his relationship, is that when he's not drinking, he's actually really lovely And sometimes even when he is drinking, he's charming, which I guess is really true of most alcoholics. But usually in movies where you have someone who is an alcoholic, they're awful all the time. And he's not.
0: I do think this is a little bit of a like weird portrayal of alcoholism. Uh, It's also kind of a weird portrayal of Hollywood success. Both of those things seem to kind of like really vary in how they work, depending on what the plot needs It's very unclear to me why Norman suddenly becomes so unpopular, because it really varies from he's hard to work with, to he's doing a shit job because he's too drunk to be a good actor anymore, to just people just don't like him anymore and are into the hot new thing. And it seems to kind of be whichever one of those is best to move the plot forward in any given scene
1: there is a moment where someone says you know oh he's a drunk and he's hard to work with but he still gave a great performance and it's like well then why does america at large give a shit about whether or not he's an alcoholic yeah like i understand why the studios may not want to work with him that makes sense because he becomes a liability But it is like, oh, well, nobody in America cares about him anymore, which I find to be strange because at least in the period of time in which I have lived, the more of a mess someone is, the more people go to the movies to see them fall apart.
0: I think what happened was... It was supposed to just be he became increasingly erratic to work with, but that's not really compatible with their relationship, because either he is then such an erratic alcoholic you don't have any sympathy for him anymore and just want Vicky to dump him, or... It is within Vicky's power to do something about it if it's just the studio doesn't like him right now. Right. And she can be endlessly vouching for him. So the American public just mysteriously turning on him is kind of the only way they both as characters get out scot-free from him suddenly being unsuccessful. But it is very weird narratively. (laughs) It's just a weird circle to square when you're watching it.
1: It's also strange because Janet Gaynor and Frederick March are, they're not even 10 years apart in age. And it did seem strange to me that she would come out and do the whole farm girl becomes a star thing at an age where she's only nine years younger than this guy who's already done the whole like, wildly successful and then dropped off. And this is the first movie that we've watched where I felt like Janet Gander was starting to show her age. Yeah, Which was fine in the parts where they've been together for a while and she's an adult and she's a wife. But I wasn't buying her as like a naive ingenue in the same way that I have in everything else that we've watched her in.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I think the whole sort of coming to Hollywood, Hollywood naivete segment. I mean, it's not insufferable. There's some good bits in there.
1: The part at the party where she's serving hors d'oeuvres and every time she goes to a different group of people, she tries on a different accent and she starts with Catherine Hepburn and then she does Mae West and she she kills it. Like she totally nailed both of them and it was really quite funny. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the total innocence, ignorance, naivete thing, I wasn't buying as much as I was like, This is a girl who is determined. Like, this is what she wants. She's going to get it, and she's going to, like, throw everything at the wall until it sticks. You see that in the party scene, and you don't see it before with her, like, going to be an extra and there's a line in that where she goes to the extra office and the woman who's showing her around shows her the switchboard where all of the women are answering the phone and saying you know no we don't have any need for anyone and that's all that they do all day so they burn out really really quickly (laughs) but the woman who's in charge of the office says you know you're one in 100,000 and I was like so you're saying there's a chance.
0: I actually had the exact same thought of, wow, that's way better odds than you have today. You really go, go for it in the 30s.
1: But, you know, she was very, very starry-eyed and everything in that period. And then that's where she meets Andy Devine's character, who's the assistant director, who who is one of several characters actually in this movie. And I'm including our leads who feel like, to me, they're doing a really, really great performance in movies that nobody else is in at the same time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I could never get a bead on whether Andy Devine's character is supposed to be a dumb guy or not. Mm -hmm. It really just never came together why anyone would hire this guy, but also is that intentional? Like, it's weird. They become sort of friends out of this misunderstanding where she begs him for a job and he thinks she's making fun of him, And like yells at her and then feels really shitty for yelling at her. And he also indirectly gives her her big break because he gets her the job handing out the hors d'oeuvres at the party where uh, Norman Maine meets her and falls in love with her. And then he just disappears for almost the rest of the movie.
1: He was Friar Tuck in Disney's Robin Hood. So if anyone has seen that, you know his voice. He sounds like that. And that is his performance is like, it is just Friar Tuck and Robin Hood. (laughs) The cartoon. Yeah. Which feels really incongruous with this movie that is supposed to be like, oh, this is the serious side of Hollywood. I
0: felt the same way about the like fixer guy from the studio, who's also the guy who was doing the like real broad gangster accent in Mr. Deeds.
1: And just playing that role again. In
0: this movie where he's a lot of fun, but also he kind of stretches the reality of what's supposed to be in a lot of parts of it, this like, extremely savage look at what Hollywood is really like.
1: Yeah, it's hard to reconcile both of those characters who are so over the top with this movie that is at its base about alcoholism and how it destroys lives and careers and relationships.
0: Yeah, I mean, just really just like having those characters exist in the same universe as the sequence where they're at the night court waiting for Norman to get sentenced is, it's wild. Mm-hmm. I think the script really does some interesting stuff trying to make those two things exist in the same world. There is a great bit with the judge early on, they go away and elope so the studio can't control their wedding, and think they've gotten away with it when the fixer guy just runs to the nearest phone, which happens to be in a courtroom where a case is going on. And the judge like screams at him for interrupting the court case. And then the fixer goes, you don't understand Norman Maine and Vicky Lester just got married. And the judge just goes, "Vicky Lester, the actress? <laughs> that the reality kind of intentionally bends sometimes is really interesting to me. But it doesn't quite work. The movie can't quite handle it. And the more I think about it, the more like, yeah, I think you're right. That's down to the direction. Because it doesn't really try and do anything to correct when it veers wildly between those tones.
1: Right, because that could have come off as being cynical of like, celebrity will get you whatever you want in Hollywood. And it instead comes off as goofy. Mm -hmm. So yeah, moving backward from that moment. When we first meet Norman Maine, he's dating this incredibly gorgeous actress who is awful because, you know, she has to be because we have to cheer for Janet Gator to get together with Frederick March. But man, I really liked Elizabeth Jens and I wanted to see more of her. <laughs>
0: It helps that her character is given really fun stuff to do.
1: And her costumes are incredible. Even
0: more than that, like, she just gets to be over the top villainous as the other woman, you know, isn't going to stick around. Like, she's just so over the top, like, you're always drunk. You're always horrible. There's always a younger woman. And it's like, (laughs) well, I mean, actually, all that stuff is true. But also the fact that that's all you ever say means you're gone in 15 minutes. And her big exit is he keeps dropping plates whenever Janet Gaynor is stuck cleaning up these plates and he comes in to talk to her. And whenever she says something he doesn't like, he drops the plate and keeps doing it to kind of have an excuse to stay there when his fiance comes in and she just just smashes him over the head with just a huge, like, dinner platter made of porcelain, apparently. And after he falls to the ground, she just turns to Janet Gaynor and goes, now look what you've done! And screams, and then finishes screaming and walks out.
1: Uh, yeah. She was great. (laughs) Yeah. She she was great in that role. And also, again, she looks phenomenal through all of it. I think one of the things that made it me accepting Janet Gator in this movie really difficult is I hated her hairstyle I felt like it was really when I compared her to this other woman that was supposed to be the one that we didn't like she never looked terribly glamorous and she's supposed to be you know she's a star that's the name of the fucking movie
0: the movie intentionally plays that up in a way that I think is vaguely interesting because one of the things that I kind of like about the movie, actually, is there's almost no indication, besides the fact that she works hard, that Vicki Lester is particularly special as an actress. The studio head even directly says, like, you've got this natural ingenue thing that is out of style, but I think it's going to come back in style, which is such a studio head way of saying there is basically nothing special about you whatsoever. <laughs> But it works for some reason. And so, like, I get not liking the haircut, but I went with it as what felt like an intentional choice.
1: Yeah, I I hated it. (laughs) I kept waiting for them to change it, you know, when they uh, like when she got to be famous and that that never happened. Anyway.
0: There's a lot of little lines in here when I say the script is better than the performances that make me say that. I really love the director who comes in to complain about Norman Maine before we really meet him at this party. And the studio head asks what the problem with him is. And the director goes, his work is starting to interfere with his drinking. <laughs>
1: So Dorothy Parker actually contributed some to this script, and that's absolutely hers. Yeah. There's no question.
0: There's about a half dozen of those. That's not only a good line, it actually tells us something about the character that the movie doesn't necessarily then pick up and run with in a way that's sort of frustrating. I think that like, oh, what was the other one? There was a really great one of those um, in the sequence where they name her Vicky Lester. And it wasn't, although that part was incredibly funny too, the part where she tells the fixer what her name is, and he just silently, with so much anger on his face, stands up and walks into the studio head's office, just completely instantly ignores her.
1: (laughs) There was a part during that where he asked if she was Russian, because they kept wanting to make her into, like, a found russian princess
0: honestly that whole sequence is really great
1: yeah it is really really good i I think frederick march in this movie is phenomenal and is giving a really great performance and is extremely tender and complex as a husband and you want him to succeed because of his tenderness toward his wife it's just not toward her I felt like they were in two different movies. They had great chemistry with the air in front of them, but somehow it never like gelled that it was between the two of them. I don't know if you had that experience. Not
0: quite, but I definitely get what you're saying. I definitely had this experience of like, Well, that's not going to work. He doesn't really love her. He just met her. And then, oh, it works because he does really love her. And this isn't just like that he thinks she's really hot.
1: Which also would be difficult to imagine because of that haircut. But anyway, (laughs) I digress.
0: (laughs) A little bit. I think that's true. But it's also so just generally strange to me that the movie makes it very clear that like he does this all the time. But for some reason that's not very clear, it sticks this time.
1: Right, right. And to
0: me, that more than that they didn't have chemistry with each other was the thing that really messed it up as a romance is that I just didn't see why their relationship was special. It seemed genuine, but as the movie goes on, their dedication to each other is like so over the top and so complete. And it's like, but why? Like, is she funny or something? I didn't hate the haircut. Janet Gaynor <laughs> looks hot in this movie, if you ask me. But I still didn't get... Okay, but what? what is it about her and his relationship with her that's making this, like, inveterate womanizer alcoholic go, no, I'm all in. It's going to destroy my life, but I'm all in.
1: I didn't get that either. Because, well, really, the only time that we see her do anything that is funny or charming before they get together is something he doesn't even see, which is the part where she's doing the impressions at the party. Because the scene in the kitchen, it's like, what what is taking place other than he's just like hitting on her and she's acting kind of skittish? And we don't get a lot of their, or we don't really get any of their courtship. It's basically like the only courtship they have is he takes her in for a screen test and then... Tells her, you know, oh, don't worry, my real last name is Hinkle or whatever.
0: I genuinely don't know what's supposed to be different about this than the other clearly dozens of times he's done this, other than she doesn't sleep with him on the first night. <laughs>
1: right, right. But is that enough to end up doing all of this? I, I guess, but it is a little bit strange. And their relationship in the marriage is actually quite sweet and quite well written, but the question as to how they got there, I don't think is ever answered. And, and it left me, it left me wanting that story.
0: For sure. That to me is the part where it really could have used another like 10, 15 minutes. Because it's literally he proposes, she goes, no, I can't do that because you're a drunk and you don't know how to deal with money and your career's going to implode. And like, just, it's going to be a disaster on all of the levels. It will obviously be a disaster. And he goes, well, what if I fix all those things? And you're like- <laughs> Um, that's bad. That's bad. That's going to go bad. Right. Um, But then he at least genuinely seems to really try in a way that I was not even expecting that. Like, I was expecting it to be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But what if you marry me anyway? (laughs) I was expecting it to be like, yeah, I just said all that so you'd marry me. Because that's the level on which the relationship seemed to be progressing before that scene.
1: Right, right. And
0: so it was really, you know, obviously unsuccessfully, given the rest of the movie, but it was really weird to come into that marriage and see him like, oh, he's actually trying to not drink. He is genuinely letting her take command of their careers and the finances. Why? (laughs)
1: Where did she even learn any of that? I Again, it's like she goes overnight from being this really naive, just off the bus ingenue to being a star and being able to run their household and their finances and their life. And the in between part I- is missing. I'm like, how does that how did any of this happen? But but I guess it did.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't think there's a better answer, even in the script, than like, well, because we're in Act 2 now. <laughs> like,
1: Right. I realize I'm like really going after this movie and I didn't hate it. I did feel like it was, well, like you said, I, I feel like it's uneven in the sense that the acting and the performances and even the direction are not equal to the script. But it wasn't, it wasn't like in any sense painful to watch.
0: Oh, no, absolutely. This was a perfectly fine film. You know, I think the reason we keep harping on it is kind of the same reason it keeps being remade. You can really see where this movie is a B plus that could have been an A minus or an A really easily. Yes. I think that same feeling people in Hollywood felt that way of like, oh, we could do this better. This story is so basic and so basically compelling. We can take all the parts that work and keep expanding on them.
1: Right. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much ready to rate this movie. I, same. Unless, yeah, okay. Uh, I'm going to give it an eight, which I realize seems totally inconsistent with everything that I just said. But I mean, I tend to be more critical of movies, I think, or anything really that I think is good, but not great. And that's how I feel about this.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat. I was leaning a little more towards seven, but eight seems totally fair. We've really downplayed that this is in color. And, like, honestly, a huge part of my enjoyment of this film and a huge part of why it is interesting is, like, it's in color, which sounds also really dismissive. But, like, given how much trouble they had with that thing where people had dialogue (laughs) in the first two years of us doing this podcast... This movie is in full color and they know how to use color.
1: Yeah, it was really it was really seamless. Yeah. In fact, the Hollywood Reporter said at the time, the color is at all times kept subordinate. It enriches without overwhelming. I think that that's true. They just they just did it. And a lot of times when we have these advances in film technology that we've seen, It's like, all right, everybody, stand back. We're going to do something that we've never done before. And this was just like, what if we just shot a movie and it was in color?
0: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Like the the color sequence at the end of House of Rothschild definitely had that like 3D, like, watch out, it's coming right for us thing (laughs) in its use of color. That it was just like, can you believe how much color is on these walls? And it's like, no. It, that's a ridiculous amount of color on those walls.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it just was a movie. Yeah. Instead of a a Technicolor Spectacular. And there's going to be so many more movies from here on out that are not in color. And the thing I always go to when people talk about like the first movies in color is The Wizard of Oz because it has, you know, it literally happens within the film. And this was not a fantasy. It was not this, like, there weren't green witches and flying monkeys. It was just a movie about real people that happen to be in color, because so is life. <laughs> Um, And there were some parts in it that were dark and moody and uh, really the only part of it where the color was super over the top was the death scene where he's, you know, walking onto the beach and walking into the sea at sunset, which is cheesy from a 2019 perspective.
0: But also, arguably, the use of color was the least over the top thing in that sequence.
1: Right, right, right. I'm really i wouldn't say excited i'm really interested to see how this is done in the 2018 a star is born which i'm not gonna watch until we get there yeah so so don't don't ask me to anyone <laughs> uh, because my understanding is that the death is actually like he doesn't just disappear <laughs> it is a suicide that happens and a body is found which is a much darker and I think more traumatic both for the character and for the audience to see. And I don't know if it actually like, I don't know if you see it in the movie because I haven't seen it, but this was definitely a way to have that, have your cake and eat it too, that you have the suicide, but you don't traumatize the audience so much that everything that comes after is like, why are we even bothering?
0: The only reason that I'm a little disappointed by that version rather than what this movie does is there's low key this through line in A Star is Born about image management in almost everything in every aspect of your life. And I do think the idea of Norman Maine killing himself in a way that will work for the tabloids is interesting.
1: And also really consistent with his character and with the fact that even when he is a mess and is not being a good husband is still interested in maintaining her career and her image yeah he could just take a bunch of pills or drink himself to death or whatever and instead he picks the romantic option he walked into the sea you know (laughs) i mean yeah it's ridiculous but also like i think that's the point yes
0: absolutely Like I kind of, I can't help but laugh, but I do want to not because I do like, it's not that the sequence doesn't work even. Right. It is when it goes full melodrama. Right. And a little bit, the scene where he wanders into the Academy Awards drunk has that same kind of dark comedy of just like, well, this is absurd. Like this is so over the top. You know, I think it, In the same way that, like, the thing that shuts you up about he walks into the sea is like, oh shit, he's dead. (laughs) The Academy Awards sequence... Like he hits his wife and you're like, oh, shit, it stopped being funny instantly.
1: Yeah, because he's giving that whole speech about like, I want to I want an award for the worst performance. And you're like, oh, God, this is embarrassing, but also like kind of funny. And then he smacks her across the face, which is even accidental. Yeah. You know, something about that is in a way, I think, more upsetting than had he done it on purpose, because it is... In that one moment, a synecdoche for his entire participation in their relationship, which is that he's not trying to hurt her, but he can't help but hurt her no matter what he does, because he's not sober.
0: It's also a synecdoche in that, like, the worst things he does to her are always public.
1: Right, yeah.
0: The worst moments of him are always just like the entire world sees them.
1: It's something that is... That is on its surface forgivable, where it's like, oh, but he didn't do it on purpose, but is also like, yeah, but it happens so much. Yeah. What's sad about it is is that it gives it a plausible deniability where it's not a reason to leave him, even though leaving him would actually be the best thing for her. Yeah. So, yeah. Should you watch this movie?
0: You know, I was... Starting with no, but, like, I've kind of come around just in the past five minutes to, like, <laughs> fuck, this movie was actually really good. It has a lot of problems, and I kind of can't stop seeing the problems, but it was really good. I'm going to say, yeah, you should watch this movie.
1: Yeah, I I think it's totally worth your time. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you liked the Lady Gaga one, like, why not, why not be a completist and watch all four? But it doesn't feel like, despite some of the broad character- interpretations a 1930s movie it does and maybe it's just because it's in color but it does have uh, an air of modernity that a lot of the movies that we have watched even you know in this year and the year before haven't had i think
0: in a way that like i have been kind of self-conscious about how much i've had to play with the like this was a movie construction for the past like two years of nominees. Like, no, straight up, this was a movie. <laughs> yeah. Even more than Great Zigfield, This really feels like the first, not even Hollywood salutes itself, but Hollywood is so interested in stories of itself movie.
1: It's the first Hollywood movie that has looked at Hollywood with the sort of critical and cynical eye that we haven't really seen before the very first broadway melody looked at broadway and and the whole like new york stage scene very cynically in a in a way that was quite moving and i think really good and this feels like the first time where they looked at hollywood and they were like yeah you know what it's it's not all tinsel and and stardust there's a lot of dirt and there's a lot of messiness and there's a lot of like uh, there's a lot of lies it is at its heart a movie that is about this couple who are torn apart by alcoholism. But it's also a movie about how Hollywood is bullshit.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I was just remembering that scene at the very end of his funeral. Where the thing where she finally cracks is the guy that runs up and goes like, you'll get over him soon. He was a piece of trash.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: The movie is so smart about the way that it's cynical about Hollywood and cynical about fame, generally. The fact that it's not necessarily that smart from a filmmaking point of view makes it a really easy movie to nitpick, but it doesn't make it a bad movie.
1: I think that is a perfect description. So so next week. yeah. Next week, we are watching Captain's Courageous, which which is I
0: like, cannot even I, I begin to tell you the number of red flags I'm seeing on this Wikipedia page. Susan.
1: Okay, first of all, Freddie Bartholomew, Spencer Tracy, yeah. Mickey Rooney, who is still a child at this point, Lionel Barrymore, who apparently will just take whatever fucking role anybody offers. him.
0: Basically, the entire cast is a red flag. But the fact that the big pull quote on the poster is as great as Mutiny on the Bounty is like, oh, fuck.
1: Oh, God. Yeah. Well, that wasn't a a great movie. So uh, why would you why would you do that?
0: (laughs) Also, I know we haven't actually had a Rudyard Kipling story movie, but just like, boy, that his his precise brand of colonialism. Is not one we've uh, had a great history with.
1: No, well, with the exception of The Jungle Book. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I've never read The Jungle Book, but the Disney cartoon is my favorite Disney movie.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm i, I meant just in the podcast so far that, like, on some level, I blame Roger Kipling for Lives of a Bengal Lancer.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If only because, <laughs> like, there would not have been a Raj without him. Yeah, he was basically like the the fucking PR guy for the rush,
0: and so just like almost all of it is, oh boy.
1: I don't, I mean I don't know what Captain's Courageous is about. Maybe it's not about uh, colonialism, but I don't. I didn't really know that Richard Kipling wrote about anything else, so so we'll find out. Yeah, uh, tune in next week where we may have to pull the big old answer card. <clears throat> But probably not.
0: Yeah, prob probably we'll just talk about that movie and then mumble something about how it was a movie at the end of the podcast.
1: Yes. Uh, until then,
0: this was a movie. This this was like a a like oh shit. This is like it's Hollywood in the nineteen thirties movies movie.
1: <laughs> it was definitely all of that. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody.
0: I don't even know what I meant by that. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> You know what your chances are? One in a hundred thousand. But maybe I'm that one.